Al Jazeera podcast. It is the year 2065, and nature has been given the same rights that humans and corporations enjoy in the 2020s. A climate refugee kills an animal for food. The defendant was eating the victim. And a reluctant lawyer is assigned his case. They have you personally pinned for an act of extinction. Since when is feeding your family a crime? The Last Impala, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Can the International Court of Justice force Israel to stop its war on Gaza? South Africa says that Israel's attacks on Palestinians are genocidal, and it's launching a legal battle to stop that at the UN's top court. So will its verdict make any difference, and who would enforce it? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. these hearings could potentially be a turning point in the international community's approach to Israel's war on Gaza. So let's bring in our guests to help explain and debate its importance. From The Hague, we're joined by Ahmed Abafoul, who's an international lawyer and legal researcher and advocacy officer of Al-Haq, that's a leading Palestinian human rights organisation. From London, we're joined by Chris Gunnis, a former spokesman for UNRWA, the UN agency that provides relief to Palestinians. He's lived through Israel's previous wars on Gaza and knows a thing or two about the international law on genocide and crimes against humanity in his role as director of the Myanmar Accountability Project. And also in The Hague, we're very pleased to have Adama Dieng back on the programme. He's a distinguished expert on genocide as the former UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide. He's also a Special Advisor to the Office of the Prosecutor for the International Criminal Court. Gentlemen, welcome to you all. Ahmed, let's start with you. What does the law actually say about what constitutes genocide and what will the ICJ take into consideration in this case? Well, genocide is, is a legal term that is clearly defined in international law by the Genocide Convention and similarly by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And it's uh, genocide uh, is committed when certain acts have taken uh, place with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national or racial uh, uh, group. Um, and the allegation of genocide in the situation in Palestine have been uh, um, uh, made by several uh, bodies, including UN experts, uh, hundreds of uh, genocide and Holocaust uh, scholars, uh, um, and several uh, um, uh, academics uh, as well. Um, so this is the definition of, of, of genocide, and um, it, it is applicable when these uh, elements are met. And in the situation in, Palest in Palestine, they seem to uh, to be met. That's why the the International Court of Justice has. Uh, jurisdiction in this case, um, and we'll be looking into deciding on the provisional measures that have been asked by uh, South Africa. Chris, a high death toll alone is not enough to prove intent, a key element in charges of genocide. Israel vehemently denies allegations of war crimes, claiming that the country is acting in self-defence. How does South Africa go about proving its accusations of genocide in this case? 
Well, it's very clear. First of all, the humanitarian facts on the ground. There are four categories of actions by the Israelis that the South Africans are honing in on in their, their complaint to the court. One is deliberate killings. Well, 60, uh, sorry, 23,000 people um, have been killed. They're dropping 2,000-pound bombs in one of the most heavily populated uh, parts of the world. Um, as far as the um, second category, which is um, causing a deliberate mental or bodily harm, we're seeing uh, huge amounts um, of trauma. 80% um, of children, even before this war, were showing heightened um, trauma. Um, bedwetting, uh, mutism, uh, suicidal ideations were affecting 50%. Um, percent. Um, then you have the issue of imposing conditions of life designed to destroy the group, either in part or, um, or all of it. Um, 355,000 homes, that's 60% of the housing stock um, has been completely destroyed. Um, 1.9 million out of 2.3 million people um, have been displaced. Um, and very lastly, the fourth category, which the South Africans are honing in on, is um, imposing conditions that prevent births. Now, premature births have risen by about 30%. Um, women are struggling to find sanitary conditions in which they can give birth. And we've all seen the pictures of the antenatal clinics and hospitals which themselves are being bombed and destroyed and starved of, um, of fuel. Um, as far as intentionality is concerned, which is the second part of your question, Adrian, um, what we're seeing is the Prime Minister on two occasions invoking the biblical Amalek uh, genocidal injunction from God, leave no women, men, babies, they must all be slaughtered. We've seen the Defence Minister, uh, Yoav Galant, talk about a complete blockade, no fuel, no water, um, no food. We've even had um, news reported by the Jerusalem Post of local officials um, talking about turning Gaza into something um, that looks like Auschwitz. We've had talk about an Hiroshima-style bomb. We've had Israeli cabinet ministers, albeit in a comment, withdrawn that talked about dropping a nuclear bomb, which, by the way, does at least confirm that the most far-right government in the history of Israel actually possesses a nuclear bomb. So as far as the humanitarian facts on the ground, and the question of intentionality is concerned, I think South Africa has a, a very strong case. And as Ahmed said, many genocide and Holocaust scholars, including Israelis and Jewish scholars, have confirmed that this is, quotes, a textbook genocide. Adama Dieng, um, while the ICJ's decisions are legally binding and can't be appealed, the court doesn't have its own ability to enforce rulings. That responsibility lies with the, the UN Security Council. Um, I, are you convinced that, that South Africa has a solid case? Uh, and, and what happens uh, if Israel ignores any judgment that goes against it? Well, I should say, first of all, that uh, this is a really a historic uh, moment. Uh, because we are having uh, tomorrow the case, the hearing at the uh, court, and uh, both South Africa and Israel will be making their points. But I, what, what I want to say is that uh, I'm really grateful to South Africa for having taken this case. Why? Because it is about prevention. And uh, the obligation to prevent genocide is a responsibility which falls on all of us, and most importantly, 
to those state party to the 1948 Genocide Convention. And I would say that even based on, on the customary international law, that even those who have not ratified are bound to prevent this uh, crime, this most horrendous crime to occur. Now, the question is, and I think uh, our colleague earlier made a point, the most difficult element to uh, evidence is the intent. And of course, uh, it will take long time to get the evidence. But here, my main concern is what can we do to make sure that what is happening under our eyes come to an end? I'm not qualifying because it will, it will be for the court based on the evidence which are brought before it by South Africa, based on the observation and other elements made by Israel to make the point. Let's not forget that even Israel at the time also accused Hamas of committing genocide. But we have to be very careful. Using the G word is something very serious. And we should not really use it lightly. But uh, in the case of Gaza and uh, what we have seen, electricity cut, what we have seen, water being uh, not also being cut, medical facilities and people being displaced. So one may put the question, are we facing a risk of genocide in Gaza? And because of we are speaking about the risk, the, this case is very important. We are not saying that there is a genocide which is occurring right now. As I said, this will be determined by a court of justice. But we are asking those states which have influence to use that influence to prevent this crime to occur. All right. Uh, Ahmed, um, do you want to pick up on, on, on what uh, Adama was saying there? How important is historical context to South Africa's application? And, and what's at stake here in terms of the credibility of the, the international legal system? No, it's absolutely uh, important. And not only the history of, of, of South Africa as a country that understands what's going on in Palestine, but also that genocide uh, um, um, as a crime is not something that is completely alien to settler colonial regimes. Colonialism uh, is guilty of genocide in other places around the world. As a matter of fact, uh, um, uh, most uh, settler colonial regimes are genocidal um, by, um, uh, by nature. They're inherently uh, genocidal. Uh, and uh, South Africa, as a country that suffered settler colonialism, suffered apartheid, uh, understands this very well. But not, not only that, South Africa's application um, uh, states that it is also important to place Israeli acts of genocide in the broader context of Israel's conduct towards the Palestinians during the past 75 years of apartheid and the 56-year-long belligerent occupation of the occupied Palestinian territories. This is the longest occupation in modern history, uh, um, which includes also six, over 16 years long uh, blockade, suffocating 
closure of the Gaza Strip, where Israel has been counting the calorie intake the Palestinians need even before this escalation. Uh, which uh, um, uh, also the, the, the UN also talked about this in a report in 2012, saying that Gaza will be unlivable by 2020. We're three years past uh, past that, with uh, um, uh, indiscriminate bombardment and with nowhere to go, nowhere is uh, is safe. So the the, the fact that uh, uh, there is allegations of genocide in Gaza is not quite surprising because Israel is governed by its uh, racist settler colonial ideology, that is Zionism, that the world has decided for decades that it's a form of racism and racial discrimination until 1991, when this uh, resolution was revoked after, after Israel conditioned its revoca revocation to come to the negotiating table in the Madrid uh, Conference for Peace. So it wasn't revoked because Zionism stopped being racism, but because Israel conditioned its revocation on coming to Madrid. So you see Israel is Israel's governing ideology, Zionism, is inherently racist, is inherently genocidal. And if, if you look at the history of the statements made by Israeli and Zionist leaders since okay. the establishment of Israel, they were also genocidal. This is not new rhetoric. This has been always there. Chris, I know, I know you wanted to come in there. Mm. I just wanted to say, I mean, to pick up on the question of using the G word very lightly, let's be clear, since the 7th of October, countless Israeli politicians, including the Prime Minister, the Defence Minister, Cabinet Ministers, members of the IDF and others, have made it very clear that they are committing genocide. They have self-indicted in public on numerous occasions. So all the court needs to do is look at, use Google. That will tell you. The other thing I wanted to do is pick up on Ahmed's point about the historical context. Raphael Lemkin, the man who in the 1940s coined the term genocide to refer to the Jewish experience in Europe, was very clear that genocide is part of a continuum. And in the case of the Palestinians, this continuum goes back at least to as far as 1948. And the dispossession, which has continued on a daily basis uh, for the Palestinians since 1948, as Ahmed said, since 1967, the Palestinians have had their land occupied. Israel has imposed on the Palestinians a system of apartheid, both in the West Bank um, and in Gaza. And again, as Ahmed said, there's been a blockade, which is a collective punishment. It's a war crime. It's illegal under international law. And when the Genocide Convention talks about imposing conditions of life calculated to destroy in part or in whole the group, it is precisely this kind of blockade and this collective punishment that the, that the Convention is talking about. So while I understand the need for caution, for judicious caution, I would also say that the facts on the ground, as reported by UNRWA and other United Agencies now and through history, point very clearly that it's prima facie evidence of genocide committed both on a historical basis and now, and the UN so, has plenty right. of confirmed and corroborated evidence Chris, of that. Chris, why, why won't the UN then use the, the word genocide? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very, very good question, because what comes into play here is politics. 
And I sat through mm -hmm. the war, several, quite a few wars in Gaza, including the last one in 2014 and in 2009, where we saw UNRWA facilities and UNRWA staff being killed. In 2007-8 war, the main warehouse in Gaza was destroyed, and the UN in New York didn't he even have the guts to press charges, compensation for the staff members killed? That was a, a decision, from what I could see as a spokesman in Jerusalem, not taken on the ground by UNRWA, but by New York. So Israel eventually paid compensation of 10.4 million. There was no question of pressing charges for killing UN member staff, humanitarian workers. That was squashed politically. And that was a question of a few staff members being killed. So how much greater the political weight being put on, um, on the UN now? And I can tell you, the Americans control the Department of Political Affairs in New York. There's always an American on the top of it. And what happens is that decision goes through the Office of Legal Affairs, the Department of Political Affairs, and the Secretary General's office. And there is huge American pressure even to stop that word being used. And let me tell you, Adrian, this Jewish, as I call it, Jewish-Israeli cancel culture, I wasn't even allowed to use the right of return as a phrase, though I did on many occasions. Um, I wasn't allowed to use the A word, the apartheid word, until much later on. And so the G word, um, as um, Adama points out, is even more sensitive and there'll be even greater political pressure. But let's be clear, the South Africans have, have presented an excellent case, a superb okay. Case And I think now one of the, the good things about this is the G word will come into the international discourse mm. to describe the contemporary Palestinian experience. And we must never withdraw from that because that is the reality in the lives of Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank. It is a genocide. And let's be clear. Adama, what's going on at the UN? Uh, you, you, heard, you heard Chris's description of, of, of what's, what he, you know, speaking from a, 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 a former insider's point of view, but why was this, this case left to South Africa to bring? Why, why wasn't the UN championing it? Well, well let, let me first say one thing. This is first and foremost an obligation of the state parties to prevent the occurrence of the, the, the commission of genocide. And I should say that we have seen a case, which is the most persecuted group, the Rohingya. It took time before this case really attracted attention. We all know the responsibility of the Security Council. And as a, in the, in the, at that time, when I was special advisor on the prevention of genocide, I sounded the alarm on Myanmar. I, the only time I would say I was maybe successful was in the case of Central African Republic, where uh, the uh, Commission of Inquiry led by Philip Alston concluded that there was a religious ethnic cleansing. And, it was, and we all know the boundary between ethnic cleansing and genocide. And uh, what I would simply say is that uh, I, may, I will not go to the extent of saying that the UN uh, was afraid to use the G word. Of course, uh, when it comes to determine, and that has been a position within the UN for a long time, the, until a case is adjudicated before a court of justice, for a court of justice, we 
could not say. We have had, for instance, many times some people who would use the word genocide when it comes to what happened, the massacres of 1915. I mean, historians call it genocide. Uh, socialists just will call it genocide. But for the United Nations, if it was adjudicated like the Srebrenica case, like the genocide of the Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994, then that will be used. And let me repeat again myself. Here, what is extremely important is to make sure okay. that right. state parties be reminded of their obligation. Okay. And that is yep. why I found this case extremely important. Uh, we uh, have uh, had the uh, uh, president, uh, uh, we have the president of yeah. Serbia. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So time, time is is pretty tight here. I just want to let uh, Ahmed get in, who's shaking his head there. Ahmed. Yeah. But, well, I, I I agree that the primary responsibility is in states because they're party to the convention. But the UN has a responsibility also to address the situation. So, for example. Uh, Mr. Adama was the uh, um, uh, the special advisor on the prevention of genocide. So such office, such mandate is specifically to prevent genocide. So when there is risk of genocide, such office would issue a statement. It's quite disgraceful, it's quite shameful that his colleague, who's now in office, Ms. Alice Nedrutu, until now didn't issue a statement on genocide. So how does he respond to that? If he was in office, he mentioned he was in office and he issued uh, uh, a statement when it comes to Rohingya. Rightly so. He did a great job. So what does he think about his, his colleague not issuing uh, a statement? Notably, the only statement she issued at the beginning of this escalation only condemned the Palestinians. And her, her okay. own colleague, colleagues at the UN sent a letter objecting to such imbalanced and okay. biased statements oh, it's right. it's Look. quite difficult to cover the the, okay. the uh, inaction of the UN there's no okay. excuses for that uh, as I said we're, we're rapidly running out of time I'm sorry I'm sorry I'll just throw that back quickly to Adama uh, you've got about 30 seconds to answer that well uh, I mean to me really I think uh, I met uh, I'm in a position which is very difficult I mean uh, to uh, uh, but I, what I can say and I think I made it very clear on 9th of October, when I was giving a conference in Oxford, I made it clear recently what, during the COP28, uh, what is happening under our eyes is totally unacceptable. And I'm extremely pleased that uh, the prosecutor of the ICC, Karim Khan, and uh, tomorrow we're going to meet with uh, civil society, Palestinian organization, including al haq which, as you may know, I admitted when I was head of the International Commission of Juries, as one of our section, did a wonderful work, my good friend Rajiv Surani. And I think this will be extremely important because okay. he, right. Karim, has decided to put it as an urgency. Okay. But now, you know, investigations are not things which we yeah. put in the street okay. and right. not in the social media. And that's Chris. why I found, as some said, it was unfair okay. uh, to right. even that. Uh, uh,
right, let's let's bring in Chris. I've got about two minutes left on the programme, Chris. I just wanted to say, Adrian, if I may, picking up on this, um, there are 150 um, signatories to this convention. Where are they? Why is Rishi Sunak? And they have an obligation to prevent mm. genocide. For the last three months, we've seen a slow-motion genocide. No-one is taking I'm... proper steps to prevent it. So, I'm... yes, the UN is dominated by America. It's under huge political pressure, especially on the question of even using the G word. We've seen them silenced, as Ahmed yeah. has said. But what I... about the member states? There are 150 I... signatories. Why are they not speaking out to prevent yeah. genocide? I, I wanted to ask you what, what we should make of the, of the US's stance. We saw in Finzen's report at the beginning of the programme you know, what Anthony Blinken thinks. Well, I can tell you they're soon going to realise that, and this was the great lesson, perhaps, the great takeaway from the 7th of October, that Israel will be condemned to live in a state of complete insecurity with the threats of more 7th of October events unless it is prepared to recognise that the best way to secure Israel is to give the Palestinians a functioning state, to give them the self-determination that all peoples, especially oppressed peoples, crave. They want their own state. They want a functioning economy, they want dignity, they want accountability, and they want justice. And until that is granted to the Palestinians, the people of southern Israel and elsewhere in the region will be destined to live in a state of utter insecurity. I went on the march in London, the anti-Semitism march, where I heard this cry, this cry, never again. Well, as far as I'm concerned, never again must be applied universally. It must be applied to all people, including the Palestinians. There, gentlemen, I'm afraid we must uh, end our discussion. Many thanks indeed to you all for taking part. Uh, Ahmed uh, Abufoul, Chris Gunnis and Adama Dean. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Fintan Monahan, Veronica Petroza and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Fadzil Yahya. The programme was edited by George Joseph, Zainab Bada and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Thursday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we head to the Red Sea as the Houthi attacks continue against ships linked to Israel. What are the repercussions on the global economy? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.